This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by CBT Nuggets and Lamigo. On this episode, Rebecca and I chat with Ben Kehoe about serverless infrastructure as code. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 107. everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly. And I'm Rebecca Marshburn. And this is Serverless Chats. And this is a momentous occasion on Serverless Chats uh, because we are welcoming in Rebecca Marshburn as an official co-host of Serverless Chats. I'm pretty excited to be here. Thanks so much, Jeremy. So for those of you that have been listening for uh, hopefully a long time, and we've done over 100 episodes, um, and, and I don't know, Rebecca, do I look tired? Do I have the, I, I feel tired. I've never seen you look tired. Okay, well, I feel tired because we've done a lot of these episodes and uh, we've pu uh, published a new episode every single week for the last 107 weeks, I think, at this point. And so what we're going to do is with you coming on as a new co-host, we're going to take a break over the summer. We're going to revamp. We're going to uh, we're going to do some work. We're going to put together some great content, um, and then we're going to come back on. I think it's August thirtieth um, with a new episode and a whole new show. Again, it's going to be about serverless. But um, what we're thinking is, and and Rebecca, I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Is I come at things from a very technical angle because I'm a overly technical person. But there's so much more to serverless. There's so many other sides to it um, that I think that bringing in more perspectives and, and really being able to interview these guests and have a, a different perspective, uh, I think is going to be really helpful. I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I uh, love the tech side of things. I am not as deep in the technical technicalities of tech. And I come at it, I think, from a way of loving the stories behind how people got there and perhaps who they worked with to get there, the ideas of collaboration and community because nothing happens in a vacuum and there's so much stuff happening and, and sharing knowledge and education and uplifting each other. And so I'm super excited to be here and super excited that one of the first episodes I get to work on with you is with Ben Kehoe because he's he's all about both tech, the technicalities of tech and also um, it's actually on his Twitter, new compassionate tech values around mm. humility and inclusion and cooperation and learning and being a mentor. So couldn't have a better guest to join you in the serverless chats community and being here for this. I totally agree. And I am looking forward to this. I'm excited. Um, I do want the listeners to know we are testing in production, right? So we haven't run any unit tests, no integration tests. I mean, this is straight That's the best practice, production. right? Total best practice to test in production, practice, straight to production, right, exactly. always test in production. Push code to the cloud. Here we go. Right away. Um, <laughs> right. So so if it's a little bit choppy, we'd love your feedback, though. Um, you, uh, you know, the listeners can be our observability tool and give us some, you know, give us some feedback and we can, um, uh, you know, and hopefully continue to make the show better. So speaking of Ben Kehoe, uh, for those of you who don't know Ben Kehoe, I'm going to let him introduce himself. But I have always been a big fan of his. He was very, very early in the uh, in the serverless space. I read all his blogs very early on. He was an early AWS serverless hero. Um, so joining us today is Ben Kehoe. He is a cloud robotics research scientist at iRobot, as I said, an AWS serverless hero. Ben, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And I'm excited to be a guinea pig for this new, exciting format. 
so many observability tools watching you be a guinea pig too. There's, there's just lots of layers to this. Amazing. Um, all right, so Ben, why don't you tell the listeners, um, for those that don't know you, a little bit about yourself and what you do with serverless. Yeah, so I mean, as as with all software, software is people, right? It's like Soylent Green. Um, and so I'm, I'm really <laughs> excited for this format being about the greater things that, that technology really involves in how we create it and set it up. And serverless is about removing the things that uh, don't matter so that you can focus on the things that do matter. Right. And uh, so I've been interested in that since I learned about it. And at the time, you know, saw that I could build things without, uh, without running servers, without needing to deal with the scaling of stuff. Um, I've been working on that at iRobot for uh, over five years now. Um, as you said, uh, early on in serverless at the first serverless conf organized by a cloud guru, now Pluralsight. Right. Um, and uh, yeah, in, uh, and it's been really exciting to see it grow into the large scale community that it is today um, and uh, all of the ways in which community are built like this podcast. Right. Yeah. And that's, and, and I, and I love, um, you know, I love everything that, that you've done. I love the, the analogies you've used. I mean, you've always kind of gone down this road of like, how do you explain serverless in a way, um, to, to show really the adoption of it and like how people can take that on. I mean, serverless is a ladder. Some of these other things that you would, you know, you, the, I guess the analogies you use were, were always great and always helped me. And of course, I don't think we've ever really come to a good definition of serverless, but we're not talking about that today. There um, isn't but, one. uh, there isn't one. <laughs> There isn't one, which is also a really yeah. good point. So, um, so yeah, so so welcome to the show. And again, like I said, testing and production here. So Rebecca, jump in when you have questions, and and we'll we'll just uh, we'll 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 beat up uh, Ben from both sides on this. But um, we're gonna really, hug Ben what, from both sides. <laughs> there you go. Um, we'll embrace him from both sides. There you go. Yeah, so yeah. the so one of the things though that Ben, you have also been very outspoken on which I absolutely love because I'm in a, a very much closely aligned on this topic here, um, but is about infrastructure as code. Um, and so let's start just quickly. I mean, I think a lot of people know, or I, I, I think people working in the cloud know what infrastructure as code is, but I also think there's a lot of people who don't. So let's just take a quick second, explain what infrastructure as code is um, and what we mean by that. Sure. To my mind, infrastructure as code is about having a definition of the state of your infrastructure uh, that you want to see in the cloud. So rather than using operations directly to modify that state, you have a unified definition of some kind. I actually think infrastructure is now the wrong word. Um, with serverless, it used to be with servers, you could manage your fleet of servers separate from the software that you were deploying onto the servers. Mm. And so infrastructure being the structure below um, made sense, but now as your code is intimately entwined in the rest of your resources, I tend to think of resource graph definitions rather than <laughs> infrastructure as code. It's a less, uh, it's a less convenient term, but I think it's, it's worth understanding the distinction, um, or the difference in perspective. 
Yeah. No, and I and I totally uh, I, I totally get that. I mean, I remember uh, even early days of cloud when we were using the chefs and the puppets and things like that. That we were just deploying, you know, just deploying the actual infrastructure itself. And sometimes you deploy software as part of that, but it was supporting software. It was the you know the stuff that ran in the runtime and some of those and some configurations. But but yeah, but the application code that was a that was a whole separate process. And now with serverless, it seems like you're deploying all those things at the same time. Yeah, there's no way to pick it apart. Right. Right. Before, Ben, there's something that I've always really admired about you, and that is how strongly you hold your opinions. Like, you're yes. fervent about them. But it's also because they're based on this, like, thorough nature of investigation and debate and challenging different people and yourself to think about things in different ways. And I know that the rest of this episode is going to be full with a lot of opinions. And so before we even get there, I'm curious if you can share a little bit about how you end up arriving at these, right, and holding them so steady. It's a good question. Well, I, I, I hope that I'm not inflexible in the strong opinions that I hold. I mean, that's one of those strong opinions, loosely held kind of things that yeah. new information can change how you think about things. Um, but I do try and do as much thinking as possible so that new information, there's less new information that I have to encounter to change an opinion. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think um, I tend to try and think about how people, I mean, again, because it's always people, um, how people interact with the technology, how people behave, how organizations behave. And then how technology fits into that, because sometimes we talk about technology in a vacuum and it's really not. It's, you know, technology that works for one context doesn't work for another. Um, and so they tend to be, I mean, a lot of my strong opinions are that there is no one right answer kind of a thing, or here's right. a framework for understanding how to think about the stuff and then how that fits into a given person is just finding where they are in that more general space. If that makes sense. So it's less about finding, Oh, here's the, here's the one way to do things. Um, and more about finding what, what are the different options? How do you think about the different options that are out there? Yeah, right. it totally makes sense. And I do want to compliment you. I do feel like you are very good at, inviting new information in if people have it and then you're like haha i've already thought so. that yeah <laughs> well there's always i was going to say there's always a balance between trying to find trying to think ahead so that when you discover something you're like oh that fits into what i thought and the danger of that being that you're twisting the information to fit into your pre-existing structures and i never I hope that I find a good balance there, but I don't have a principled way of determining that balance or knowing where you are in that, in that, you know, it's good versus it's dangerous kind of spectrum. 
Right. So one of the one of the opinions that you hold um, that I definitely um, I you know I tend to agree with. I, I have some thoughts about some of the benefits, but I also really agree with the other piece of it. Um, and this really has to do with the CDK um, and this idea of you know using CloudFormation or any sort of DSL, maybe Terraform, things like that. Something that is more domain specific, right? As opposed to, or I, I guess um, uh, uh, declarative, right? As opposed to something that is imperative like the CDK. DK. So um, just to get everybody on the same page here, um, what what is the sort of the top reasons why you believe or you think DSL, that DSL approach is better than, um, you know, sort of that iterative approach? Yeah. Interpretive approach, so I guess. I think, I think we get caught up in the imperative versus declarative part of it. I do think that declarative has benefits um, that that can be there, but sort of the way that, that I think about it is with the CDK and infrastructure as code in general, I'm like mildly against imperative definitions of resources. And we can get into that part, but that's my, like my smallest objection to the CDK. I'm moderately against not being able to enforce deterministic builds. So in the mm -hmm. CDK, CDK program can do anything can use a random number generator. You can go out to the internet to go ask a right. question, right? Um, you can do anything in that program, and that means that you have no guarantees that what's coming out of it, you're going to be able to repeat. So even if you check the source code in, you may not be able to go back to the same infrastructure that you had before. Now you can if you're disciplined about it, but I like tools that help give you guardrails so that you don't have to be as disciplined. Um, so that's my moderately against my strongly against piece uh, is I'm strongly against developer intent remaining client side. And this is not an inherent flaw in the CDK. It's a choice that the CDK team has made mm -hmm. um, to turn organizational dysfunction in AWS into ownership for their customers. And I don't think that's a good uh, approach to take, but that's also fixable. So I think um, if we want to start with the imperative versus declarative thing, right? Um, when I think about the developers expressing an intent and I want that intent to flow entirely into the cloud so that the developer can understand what's deployed in the cloud in terms of the things that they have written. Mm -hmm. The CDK takes this approach of flattening it down, flattening the richness of the program that the developer has written into, they think of it as assembly language. I think that is a, uh, a misinterpretation of what's happening. The assembly language in the process is the imperative plan generated inside the CloudFormation engine that says, here's mm -hmm. how I'm going to take this definition and turn it into uh, an actual uh, change in the cloud. Um, they're just translating between two definition formats in CDK synth. Um, and so, but it's a flattening process. It's a lossy process. So then when the developer goes to the console or the, or the APIs to go say, what's deployed here? What's going wrong? What do I need to fix? None of it is framed in terms of the things that they wrote in their original language. And I think that's the biggest problem, right? So drift detection is an important thing, right? 
what happened when someone went in through the console and went and tweaked some stuff to fix something. And now it's different from the definition that's in your source repository. And in CloudFormation, it can tell you that. But what I would want if I was writing CDK is that it should produce another CDK program that represents right. the current state of the cloud with a meaningful file level diff with my original program. Right. Now, Cause that, cause, cause that would make you, cause like if I'm just thinking this through, like if I deploy something with CDK and I've got all these loops and they're generating functions and they're using some naming and all this kind of stuff, whatever, now it produces this output. And again, my naming of my functions might be, um, you know, some function that gets called to generate the names of the function. Yeah. And so now I've got all these functions named and I have to go in, um, I, there's no one-to-one -one map, like you said, and I can imagine somebody who's not familiar with cloud formation, which is ultimately what CDK, you know, synthesizes and produces, if you're not familiar with what that output is and how that maps back to the constructs that you created, I can see that as being really difficult, especially for younger developers or developers who are just sort of getting started in that. And the, the CDK really takes the attitude that it's going to hide those things from those developers mm. rather than help them learn it. And so when they do have to dive into that, you know, the CDK refers to it as an escape hatch. And I think of escape hatches on submarines where you go from being warm and dry and having <laughs> air to breathe to being hundreds of feet below the sea, right? It's not, it's, it's not the sort of thing you want to go through. Whereas right. some tools like Amplify talk about graduation. So in Amplify, they aim to help you understand the things that Amplify is doing for you such that when you grow beyond what Amplify can provide you, you have the tools to do that, to take the thing that you've built and then say, okay, I know enough now that I understand this and can add on to it in ways that Amplify can't help with. Now, how right. successful they are in doing that is a separate question, I think. But the attitude yeah. is there to say, you know, we're looking to help developers understand these things. Now, the CDK could also, if the CDK was a managed service, right? would not need developers to understand those things. If you could take your program directly to the cloud mm -hmm. and say, here's my program, go make this real. And when it made it real, you could interact with the cloud in an understanding where you could list your deployed constructs, right? That you could understand the program that you wrote when you're looking at the resources that are deployed all together in the cloud everywhere. That would be a thing where you don't need to learn cloud formation. Right. Right. And that would be, and then you get in, that's where you then end up in the imperative versus declarative part where, you know, okay, there's some reasons that I think declarative is better. Um, but the, the major thing is that disconnect that's currently built into the way the CDK works. And the reason that they're doing that is because cloud formation is not moving fast enough, which is not always on the CloudFormation team. It's often on the service teams that aren't building the resources fast enough. And that's AWS's problem, AWS as an entire company, as an organization. Mm -hmm. And this one team is saying, well, we can fix that by doing all this client side. What that means is that the customers are then responsible for all the things that are happening on the client side, right? The reason right. that they can go fast is because the CDK team doesn't have ownership of it which just means the ownership is being pushed on customers, right? The CDK deploys Lambda functions into your account that they don't tell you about, right. that you're now responsible for, right? Both the security right. and operations of, 
if there are security updates that the CDK team has to push out, you have to take action to update those things, right? That's ownership that's being pushed onto the customer to fix a lack of, you know, uh, ACM certificate management, right? That is ACM not building the thing that's needed. And so AWS says, okay, great. We'll just make that the customer's problem. And I don't agree with that approach. So I'm sure uh, as an AWS hero, you certainly have like pretty good, strong, open communication channels with a lot of different team members across teams. And I certainly know that they're like listening to you and or at least hearing you, we should, I should say, and, and watching you and they know how you feel about this. And so I'm curious how some of those conversations have gone and um, some teams as compared to others at AWS are really, really good about kind of opening their roadmap or at least saying, hey, we hear this and here's our path to solution or success. And I'm curious if there's any light you can shed on whether or not those conversations have been have been fruitful in terms of um, actually being able to get somewhere in terms of like customer in, in AWS terms, right? Customer obsession first. Yeah, well, customer obsession can mean two things, right? Customer obsession can mean giving the customer what they want or it can mean giving the customer what they need. And different AWS teams approach fall differently on, on that scale. Um, the reason that many of those things are not available in CloudFormation is that those teams are, you know, they could be under-resourced. They could have a larger majority of customers that want new features rather than infrastructure as code support, because as much as we all like infrastructure as code, there are many, many organizations out there that are not there yet. Um, and like with the CDK in particular, I'm, you know, a relatively lone voice out there saying, I don't think this ownership that's being pushed onto the customers is a good thing. And there are lots of developers who are eating up cloud or CDK saying, I don't care. Like that's not, that's not something that's (laughs) in their worry. And because the CDK has been enormously successful, right? It's fixing these problems that exist. Um, And I don't begrudge them trying to fix those problems. I think it's a question of do those developers who are grabbing onto those things and taking them understand the full total cost of ownership that the CDK is bringing with it? And if they don't understand it, I think AWS has a responsibility to understand it uh, and work with it to help those customers understand, either understand it and deal with it. Right, which is where the CDK sort of takes this approach. Well, if you do get ops, it's all fine. And that's somewhat true, but also many developers who can use the CDK do not control their CI CD process. So mm-hmm. there's all sorts of ways in which, um, uh, yeah, so I think every team is trying to do the best that they can, right? They're all, um, they're all working hard and they all have are pulled in many different directions by customers. And most of them are making, I think, the right choices given their incentives, right? Given what their customers are asking for. I think not all of them balance what customers where meeting customers where they are versus leading them where they should, like where they need to go, um, as well as I would like. Um, but I think uh, 
I had I had a conclusion to that. Um, uh, oh, but I think that's always a debate as to where that balance is. And then the other thing, when I talk about the CDK, the my ideal audience there is less AWS itself and more AWS customers to sure. understand what they're getting into um, and therefore to demand better of AWS, which is in general, I think the approach that I take with AWS is, you know, complaining about AWS in public because I do have the ability to go to teams and say, hey, I want this thing, right? Um, there are plenty of teams where I could just email them and say, hey, this feature would be nice. But I put it on Twitter because other people can see that and say, oh, that's something that I want. Or I don't think that's helpful, right? Like, I don't care about that. Or I think it's the wrong thing to ask for, right? All of those things are better when it's not just me saying, I think this is a good thing for AWS, but it being a conversation among the community to frame it. Hi, everyone. I just want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, CBT Nuggets. If you're an IT professional or a developer like me, you know how important it is to constantly be learning new skills to keep up with the latest trends. Now, sometimes a blog post or a YouTube tutorial can get you started. But if you really want to upskill, nothing compares to professional training from experts you can trust. With CBT Nuggets, I have access to more than 400 courses and 4,000 hours of professional training. And with a 100% in-house training team, they add 40 hours of new training every week. Their courses feature topics ranging from building serverless apps with Lambda and DynamoDB to certification-focused training for AWS, Microsoft, Linux, and more. CBT Nuggets also offers virtual labs so that you can practice your new skills as you're learning them. And they have accountability coaching, which lets you talk to a real person to create a customized learning plan to set goals and keep you accountable. Whether you're a developer looking to sharpen your skills or a team looking to level up together, you can try CBT Nuggets for free for seven days thanks to their free trial offer. Just visit cbtnuggets.com serverless and sign up to get started. Yeah, I think in the spirit too of um, trying to publicize types of like what might be best next for customers, I, you said total cost of ownership, and I, even though it might seem silly to ask this, I think oftentimes we say the, I, the words total cost of ownership, but there's actually many dimensions to total cost of ownership or TCO, right? And so I think it would be great if you could kind of enumerate what you think of as total cost of ownership, because there might be dimensions along that like matrix, matrices, matrix that people haven't considered when they're actually thinking about total cost of ownership. They're like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Like, you know, some ops and some security stuff I have to do and some patches, but they might only be thinking of five dimensions when you're like, actually the framework is probably 10 to 12 to, to 14. And so if you could kind of outline that a bit, what you mean when you think of a holistic total cost of ownership, I think that could be super helpful. I'm, I'm bad at enumeration. Um, so I, I would miss out on dimensions that, that are obvious if I, if I was attempting to do that, but I think, uh, a way that I can, I think effectively answer that question is to talk about some of the ways in which we misunderstand TCL. So I think it's important when working in an organization to think about the organization as a whole, not just, uh, your perspective in it, your team's perspective in it, 
And so when you're working for lowest TCO, it's not what's going to, what's the lowest cost of ownership for my team if that's pushing a larger burden onto another team. Um, now, if it's reducing the burden on your team and only increasing the burden on another team a little bit, that can be a lower total cost of ownership overall. Um, but it's also something that then feeds into things like political capital, right? Is that increased ownership that you're handing to that team something that they're going to be happy with? Something that's not going to cause other problems down the line, right? Those are the sorts of things that fit into that calculus because it's not just about what, I think about it not like, moving away from that topic for a second, I think about when we talk about, you know, how does this increase our velocity, right? There's the piece of, okay, well, if I can deploy to production faster, right? The, my feedback loop is faster and I can move faster, right? But the other part of that equation is how many different threads can you be operating on and how long are those threads in time? So when you're trying to ship a feature, if you can ship it and then never look at it again, that means you have increased bandwidth in the future to take on other features to develop, other new features. And so even, you know, if you think about, it's gonna take me longer to finish this particular feature, but then there's no maintenance for that feature. That can be a lower cost of ownership in time than I can ship it 50% faster, but then I'm going to periodically have to revisit it and that's going to disrupt uh, my ability to ship other things, right? And so this is where, you know, uh, I had conversations recently about, you know, uh, increasing use of step functions, right? And being able to replace mm -hmm. Lambda functions with step functions with express workflows because you never have to go back to those Lambdas and update dependencies in them because, you know, Dependabot has told you that you need to. Um, or a version of Python is getting deprecated, right? All of those things, just if you have your Amazon States language, however it's been defined, right? Um, once it's in there, you never have to touch it again if nothing else changes. Mm. And, that's, and that means, okay, great. That piece is now out of your work stream forever, unless it needs to change. And that means that you have more bandwidth for future things, which serverless is about in general, right? Of saying, right. Well, okay, I don't have to deal with the scaling problems here. So those scaling things, once I have the, an auto scaling group, I don't have to go back and tweak it later. And so the same thing happens at the feature level if you build it in ways that, that allow you to do that. And so I think that's one of the places where when we focus on, okay, speed of how fast does this get me into production? It's okay, but how often do you have to revisit it? Right. That, yeah. And so, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. No, I was just gonna say, you, so you mentioned a, a couple of things in there, in, not only in that question, but in sort of the previous uh, questions as you were talking about, uh, talking about the, the CDK in general. And I am a hundred percent behind you on this idea of deterministic builds, because I want to know exactly what's being deployed. I want to be able to, uh, I want to be able to audit that and kind of map that back. And you can, you can audit. I mean, you could synth, you know, run CDK synth and then audit the cloud formation and test against certain things. But if you're, 
changing stuff, right? And then you have to understand not only the CDK, but also, you know, the cloud formation that it actually right. generates. But in terms of sort of like solving problems, some of the things that the CDK does really, really well, and this is something where I've always had this issue with just trying to use raw cloud formation or serverless framework or SAM or any of these things, is the fact that there's a lot of boilerplate that you often have to do. There's ways that companies want to do something specifically. Like I always want, you know, I, I basically probably always need like 1400 lines of cloud formation. And, you know, for every project I do, it's probably close to the same. And then add a little bit more to actually make it, you know, adapt it for my product. And so one thing that I love about the CDK is constructs. And I love this idea of being able to package these best practices for your company or these compliance, you know, uh, requirements, <clears throat> excuse me, require, uh, compliance requirements for your company, whatever it is, be able to package these and just kind of hand them to developers. And so I, I'm just curious on your thoughts on that, because that seems like a really good a move in the right direction, but without the deterministic builds, without some of these other problems that you talked about, you know, is is there another solution to that that would be more, um, you know, more declarative? Yeah, and I think so. Um, in theory, if in theory, if the CDK was able to produce an artifact that represented all of the non-deterministic dependencies that it had, right? Um, that allowed you to then store that artifact so that you'd come back and put that into the program and say, I'm going to get out mm -hmm. the same thing. But because the CDK doesn't control upstream of it, that the, the code that the developers are writing, there isn't a way to do that, right? Um, right. So on the abstraction front, right? Like constructs are super useful, right? Uh, CloudFormation now has modules, which allow you to say, here's right. a template, and I'm going to represent this as uh, a CloudFormation type itself, right? So instead of, uh, instead of saying that I need, you know, X different things, um, I'm going to say, I've packaged that all up. Here it is as a type. Now, yeah. currently, modules can only be plain CloudFormation templates. And there's a lot of constraints in what you can express inside a CloudFormation template. And I think the answer for me is what I want to see is more richness in the CloudFormation language, right? So like a lot of things, you know, one of the things that people do in the CDK that's really helpful is say, I need a copy of this in every AZ, right? right? You know, there's so much boilerplate in server-based things. Um, and CloudFormation can't do that, right? But if you imagine that it had a map function that allowed you to say, right. for every AZ, stamp me out, you know, a copy of this little bit. And then that the CDK constructs allowed you to translate, instead of it doing all this generation only down to the L1 piece, instead being able to say, I'm going to translate this into more rich CloudFormation templates. So that the CloudFormation template was as advanced as possible, right? Mm -hmm. Then it could do things like say, oh, I know you need to do this in every AZ. I'm going to use this map function in the CloudFormation template rather than just stamping it out, right? Um, right? And so I think that's possible. Now, modules should also be able to be defined as CDK programs. Right, you should be able to register a construct as a CloudFormation type. There's no reason you shouldn't that would be, be able pretty to. cool. Yeah. Right. 
Um, because I think the declarative versus imperative thing is again, not the most important piece. It's how do we move, you know, it's shifting right in this case, right? That how do you shift what's happening in with the developer further into the process of deployment so that more of their context is present. And so one of the things that the CDK does that's hard to replicate is sort of have non-local effects. Mm -hmm. And this is both convenient and uh, I think a, a code smell often. So like you can pass a bucket resource from another stack into a piece of code in your CDK program that's, that's creating a different stack. And you say, oh, great, I've got this Lambda function. It needs permissions to that bucket. So add permissions. And it's possible for the CDK program to either be adding the permissions onto the IAM role of that function or non-locally adding to that bucket's resource policy, which is weird, right? right? That you can be creating a stack and the thing that you do to that stack or resource or whatever is not happening there, it's happening elsewhere. Right. Um, and so I don't always, I, I don't think that's a great approach you know, um, but it's certainly convenient to be able to do it in, in a lot of situations. Now that's not representable within a module. A module is a contained piece of functionality that can't touch anything else. So right. things like SAM, where you can add events onto a function that can go and create, like uh, you create the API events, right? On different functions. And then Sam aggregates them and creates an API gateway for you. Right. Right. If AWS serverless function was a module, it couldn't do that because you'd have these in different places and you couldn't aggregate something between all of them and put them in the top level thing. Right. This is what uh, CloudFormation macros enable, but they don't have a, there's no proper interface to them. Right. They don't define. This is what I'm doing. This is the kind of resources I can create. Like there's none of that that would help you understand them. So they're infinitely flexible, but then also uh, maybe uh, less principled for that reason. So I think there are, there are ways to evolve, but it's investment in the CloudFormation language that allows us to shift that burden from being a flattening inside client-side code from the developer and shifting it to be able to be represented in the cloud. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, I think from that standpoint too, if we go back to the solving people's problems standpoint, that everything you explained there, they're loaded with nuances. It's loaded with gotchas, right? Like you, Oh, you can't do this. You can't do that. So that's just why I think the CDK is so popular because it's like, you can do so much with it so quickly. Uh, and it's very, very fast. Uh, and I think that trade-off uh, people are just willing to make it. Yes, and that's where they're willing to make it. Do they fully understand the consequences right. of it? Right. And does AWS communicate those consequences well? Because I get into that question of, okay, you're a developer that's brand new uh, to AWS and you've been tasked with standing up you know, some Kubernetes cluster and you're like, great, I can use the CDK to do this. You know, something is malfunctioning. You're also tasked with the operations and something is malfunctioning, you go in through the console and 
maybe figure out all the things that are out there are new to you because they're hidden inside L3 constructs, right? You're two levels down from where you were defining what you wanted. Right. And then you find out what's wrong and you have no idea how to turn that into a change in your CDK program. So instead of going back and doing the thing that infrastructure as code is for, which is tweaking your program to go fix the problem, you go and you tweak it in the console. Right. And you fix it that way. Which you should never do. Right. <laughs> well, and that's and that's the thing that I struggle with with the CDK is how does the CDK help the developer who's in that situation? And I don't think they have a good story around that. Now, I don't know... I haven't talked with enough junior developers who are using the CDK about how often they get into that situation, right? But, you know, I sort of always say client-side code is not a replacement for a managed service because when it's client-side code, you still own the result. Whereas if a CDK construct, if a particular CDK construct was a managed service in AWS, then all of the resources that would be created underneath are AWS's problem to make work. And the interface right. that the developer has is the only level of ownership that they have, right? Fargate is this, right? Fargate turned, because you could do all the things that Fargate does with a CDK construct, right? Set up EC2, do all the things and represent it as something that looks like Fargate in your CDK program. But every time your EC2 you know, fleet is unhealthy, that's your problem. With Fargate, that's AWS's problem. Right. And I think that's the, if we didn't have Fargate, that's essentially what CDK would be trying to do for ECS. <laughs> and I think we all recognize that Fargate is very necessary and helpful in that case, right? And I just want that for all the things, <laughs> right? Whenever I have an abstraction, if it's an abstraction that I understand, then I should have a way of zooming into it while not having to switch languages, right? right. So that's where you know you shouldn't dump me out into CloudFormation to understand what you're doing. You should help me understand the low-level things in the same language. And if it's not something that I need to understand, it should be a managed service. It shouldn't be a bunch of stuff that I still own that I haven't looked at. Right. Makes sense. You got a question, Rebecca? Just wait. <laughs> Just wait for you no, to but I was going to make a joke, but then it, like the joke passed. And then I was like, but should I still make it? <laughs> I was going to be like, yeah, but does the CDK let you test in production? Uh, <laughs> but that was like a 30 second ago joke. And then I was like really wrestling with whether or not I should tell it. But I told it anyway. Hopefully someone gets a laugh. Well, there's, yeah, I mean, there's the thing that Charity Major says, right? Which is that everybody tests in production. Some people are lucky enough to have a development environment as well. Or no, sorry. <laughs> I said that the wrong way. It's everybody has a test environment. Some people are lucky enough that it's not production. Right. Yeah, they yeah. swap that, reverse it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Lumigo. 
We've talked a lot about observability on this podcast, and if you've listened to any of those episodes, then you know that it can be difficult to achieve serverless observability with traditional approaches. Now, though serverless comes with many opportunities and advantages, it also has some unique issues that some tools just aren't able to address, and those issues really need something meant for serverless environments. Now, that's where Lumigo comes in. As a serverless-first monitoring platform, Lumigo lets developers quickly and easily find and fix errors and performance issues, while also giving you an end to end view of the entire transaction across services and functions. All of the debugging information you need is conveniently in one place, and you're able to set up alerts so that you know what's happening and how it might affect the user experience. Lumigo also knows how to play nice with your existing tool chain, enabling you to send alerts to email, Slack, Microsoft Teams, Ops Genie, and more, and can also create tickets in Jira straight from the issues page. Thanks to their automatic distributed tracing, it only takes four clicks to set up Lumigo with no manual code changes necessary. Lumigo already has a free plan that lets you track up to 150,000 AWS Lambda invocations a month, but today they're offering Serverless Chats listeners a special promotion. Sign up for a free account at lumigo.io and enter promo code CHATS500 and your free account limit will go up to half a million monthly invocations. That's lumigo.io with promo code CHATS500 to try it out today. Uh, speaking of, um, you know, sort of uh, talking to de- developers and, and kind of getting feedback from them. So I actually put a question out on Twitter a couple of weeks ago and um, got a lot of really interesting um a uh, lot of interesting reactions, and essentially, um, you know, I just kind of, I kind of asked, "What do you love or hate about infrastructure as code?" Um, and there were a lot of really interesting, um, uh, interesting things here. I don't know, maybe it might be fun to kind of go through a couple of these and get your thoughts on them. Um, so uh, this is probably not a great one to start with, but I thought it was I thought it was kind of interesting because this I think represents the frustration uh, the frustration that a lot of us feel, um, and it was basically that you know um, they love that automation you know minimizes future work right, but they hate that it makes life harder over time. Um, and you know that pretty much every approach to infrastructure at co- uh, infrastructure and uh, sorry. Yeah, infrastructure and code at the present is sort of flawed, right? Like, so really there are no good solutions right now. Yeah, CloudFormation is still a pain to learn and deal with. Um, If you're operating in certain IDEs, you can get tab completion. Um, If you go to CDK, you get tab completion, which is, I think, probably most of the value that developers want out of it. Um, and And then the abstraction and then all the other fancy things it does like pipelines, which again, should be a managed service. Um, I do think, I do think that person is absolutely right to complain about how difficult it is. Um, and that there is, uh, um, that there are many ways that it could be better. One of the things that I think about when I'm using tools is it's not inherently bad for a tool to have some friction to use it. This goes to uh, another infrastructure as code tool that goes even further than the CDK and says, you can define your Lambda code in line with your infrastructure definition. So this is Pulumi. Right. Um, And there's some other uh, punch card uh, also lets you do some of this 
basically extracts out the bits of your code that you say, this is a custom thing that glues together two things I'm defining in here. And I'll make that a Lambda function for you. And for me, that is too little friction to defining a Lambda function. Hmm. Because when I define a Lambda function, just going back to that, that bringing in ownership, every time I add a Lambda function, that's something that I own, that's something that I have to maintain, that I'm responsible for, that can go wrong. So if I'm thinking about, well, I could have API Gateway direct into DynamoDB, but it'd be kind of nice if I could change some of these fields. Um, and so I'm just going to drop in a, a little sprinkle of code, you know, three lines of code in between here to do some transformation that I want. That is all of a sudden an entire Lambda function you have brought into your infrastructure. Right. And so I That's want a little bit of friction to do that, to make me think about it, to make me say, oh yeah, downstream of this decision that I am making, there are consequences that I would not otherwise think about if I'm just trying to accomplish the problem, right? Because I think, you know, developers, humans in general tend to be a bit short-sighted, right? When you're, you have a goal, you know, especially, and you're being pressured to complete that goal and you're like, okay, well, I can complete it. The consequences yeah. for later are always sort of a secondary concern. And so if you can change your incentives in that moment to say, okay, well, this is going to guide me to say, ah, I don't really need this Lambda function in here. Then I'm better off in the long term while accomplishing that goal in the short term. So I, I, I do think that, um, there is a place for tools making things difficult. That's not to say that the amount difficult that infrastructure as code is today is at all reasonable. Um, but I do think it's worth thinking about, right? I'd rather take on the pain of creating an ASL definition by hand for, yeah. um, for an express workflow than the easier thing of writing Lambda code because I know the long-term consequences of that. Now, if, it, if that could be flipped where it was harder to write something that took more ownership, it'd be right. just easy to do, right? You'd always do the right thing. Um, but I think it's always worth saying, you know, can I do the harder thing now to pay off later? And I always, I always call those shortcuts tomorrow, Jeremy's problem. Um, that's how I like to look at those. Yes. <laughs> but, um, but so, and you know, the funny thing about that too, is I remember right when, um, event bridge came out and there was no cloud formation support for like a long time, which was super frustrating. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, like serverless framework, for example, implemented a custom resource in order to do that. And I remember looking at a clean stack and being like, why are there two Lambda functions there that I have no idea? I'm like, I didn't publish. I, I honestly thought my account was compromised that somebody had published a Lambda function in there because I'm like, I didn't do that. Um, and then it took me a while to realize I'm like, oh, this is what this is. But if it is that easy to just create little transform functions here and there, I can imagine there being thousands of those in your account without anybody knowing that they even exist. I would love to have the ability to drop in little transforms that did not involve Lambda functions. So in other right, words, I mean, awesome. the thing that VTL does for API Gateway REST APIs, but without it being VTL and being, right. um, because that's hard. And then also, uh, you know, restricted in what you can do, 
right? It's not, oh, I can drop in arbitrary transformation, you know, arbitrary code in here. Um, but enough to say, oh, I want to flip, you know, the, these fields should be, you know, go from a key value mapping to a list of, you know, key value, right? In the way that AWS is inconsistent in how tags are defined across services, <laughs> those kind of things. Um, right. Those are like, and you could drop that in any service, but once you've defined it, there's no maintenance for you, right? That it's not actually, you know, you write in JavaScript, it's not actually a JavaScript engine underneath or something. It's just getting translated into some multi, big multi-tenant fancy thing. And I have a hypothesis that that should be possible. You should be able to do it where you could even do it in the parsing of JSON, like being able to do transforms yeah. without ever having to have the whole object in memory. And if we could get that, then, oh, sure, now I have sprinkled all over the place all of these little transforms. Now, there's a little bit of overhead of if the transform is defined correctly or not, right? right. But once it is, then it just works. And having all those little transforms everywhere is then fine, right? And that incentive to make it harder doesn't need to be there because it's not bringing ownership with it. Yeah, it's almost like taking the idea of, you know, tomorrow Jeremy's problem and actually switching it to say tomorrow Jeremy's celebration, where tomorrow Jeremy gets to look back at past Jeremy and be like, nice, like, thank you for making that decision past Jeremy. Because I think we often do look at it in terms of tomorrow Jeremy will think of this, like we'll solve this problem rather than how do we approach it by saying, how do I make tomorrow Jeremy thankful for today, Jeremy? Um, and that's that's a hard, like a, a simple language, linguistic switch, but like a hard switch to actually make decisions based on. Yeah, I don't think tomorrow Ben is ever thankful for today, Ben. I think it's <laughs> tomorrow Ben is thankful for yesterday, Ben, setting up the incentives correctly. Right. So that... Um, so that today, Ben, uh, will do the right thing for tomorrow, Ben. Right? Like sort of <laughs> when I think about when I think about people, I think it's easier to convince people to accept a change in their incentives than to convince them to fight against their incentives sustainably. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. I think developers, and I'm guilty of this too. I mean, we make decisions based off of expediency. We, we want to get things done fast. Um, and when you get stuck on that problem, you're like, you know what? I'm not going to figure it out. I'm just going to write a loop or I'm going to do whatever I'm going to do to just, you know, just, just to make it work. Uh, work. Another if statement here isn't going to hurt anybody. Um, all right. So let's move. About that. Sorry, go ahead. So, I was going to say, we shouldn't feel bad no, you're right. about that. That's where I don't want tomorrow, Ben, to have to be thankful for today, Ben. Because that's the implication there is that t today Ben is fighting against his incentives to do good things for tomorrow Ben. And if I don't need to have to get to that point where just the right path is the easiest path, right? Okay. Which means putting friction in the right places, then today Ben, it's never a question of whether today Ben is doing something that's worth being thankful for. It's just doing the job, right? Yeah. Right. right. 
No, that makes sense. Um, all right. I got another question here. I think co- sort of falls under the category of service discovery, which I know is another topic that you love. Um, so this person said, I love uh, IAC, but hate the fuzzy boundaries where certain software awkwardly fall. So like Istio and Prometheus and Cert Manager, um, you know, that they can be considered part of the infrastructure, but then it's awkward to deploy them when something like Terraform d- due to circular dependencies relating to uh, K8s and things like that. So I mean, I know that we don't have to get into the actual details of that, but I think that is an important aspect of uh, infrastructure as code where, you know, best practices sometimes are deploy a stack that has your permanent resources and then deploy a stack that maybe has your more ephemeral or the ones that are going to be changing, the more mutable ones, like maybe your Lambda functions and some of those sort of things. Um, You know, and if you're using Terraform or you're using some of these other services as well, you do have that really awkward mix where you're trying to use outputs from one stack into another stack and trying to do all that. And really, I mean, there's some good tools that help with it. But I mean, just overall thoughts on that. Well, we certainly need to demand better of AWS services when they design new things that they need to be designed so that infrastructure as code will work. So this is the S3 bucket notification problem. A very long time ago, right. um, S3 decided that they were going to put bucket notifications as part of the S3 bucket. Well, CloudFormation at that point decided uh, that they were going to put bucket notifications as part of the bucket resource. And S3 decided that they were going to check permissions when the notification configuration is defined so that you have to have the permissions before you create the configuration. This creates a circular dependency when you're hooking it up to anything in CloudFormation because the dependency depends on uh, the resource policy on an SNS topic, an SQS key, or a Lambda function depends on the bucket name. If you're letting CloudFormation name the bucket, which is the best practice, uh, then the bucket name has to exist, which means the resource has to have been created. But the notification depends on the thing that's notifying, which doesn't have the name, so the resource policy doesn't exist, so it all fails. And this is solved in a couple of different ways, one of which is uh, um, name your bucket explicitly. Again, not a good practice. Um, Another is uh, what Sam does, which says the Lambda function will say, I will allow all S3 buckets to invoke me. So it has a star permission in its resource policy. So then the notification will work. yeah, there's uh, none of which is good, or there's custom resources that get created, right? right? Now, if those resources had been designed with infrastructure as code as part of the as part of the process, then it would have been obvious. Oh, you end up with a circular dependency. We need to split out bucket notifications as a separate resource, right? And not enough teams are doing this. Often they're constrained by the API that they developed first. So they come up with the API, which often makes sense for a console experience that they desire. So this is where like API Gateway has this whole thing where you create all the the routes and the the resources and the methods and everything, right? And then you say, great, deploy. And in the console, you only need one mutable working copy of that at a time. But it means that you can't create two deployments or like update two stages in parallel through infrastructure as code and API gateway because they both talk to this mutable working copy mm. state and would you know overwrite each other and if 
infrastructure as code had been on their, their list, it would have been, oh, if you have a definition of your API, you should be able to go straight to a deployment, right? Right. And so trying to push that upstream, which to me is more important than infrastructure as code support at launch. Where people are often like, oh, I want CloudFormation support at launch. But that often means that they get no feedback from customers on the design and therefore make right. it bad. Um, KMS asymmetric keys should have been a different resource type so that you can easily tell which key types are in your template. Right, so that you can use things like CloudFormation yeah. Guard more easily on those. Sure, you can control the properties or whatever, but you should be able to think in terms of, I have a symmetric key or an asymmetric key in here and they're treated completely separately because you use them completely differently, right? They don't get used in the same right. place. Right. Yeah. And I, and, um, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the lacking support, you know, at launch, cause that was another complaint, um, that was, uh, quite, uh, you know, quite, uh, prevalent in this thread here was people complaining that they don't get that cloud formation support right away. But I think you made a very good point where, they do build the APIs first. And that's another thing. I, I don't know which question asked me or which one of these uh, mentioned it, but there was a lot of, um, uh, you know, sort of anger over the fact that you go to the API docs or you go to the docs for AWS and it focuses on the console and it focuses on the CLI and then it gives you the API stuff and very little mention of um, of CloudFormation at all. And usually you have to go to a whole separate set of docs to find the CloudFormation and it really doesn't tie all the concepts together, right? So it, you, you get like a just a, a block of JSON or of YAML and you're like, am I supposed to know what everything does here? Yeah. And I think it's that I assume that's data driven, right? And that we exist in this bubble where everybody loves infrastructure as code. Um, and that AWS has many more customers who set things up using the console, people who learn by doing it first through the console. Um, I assume that's true. If it's not, then AWS is, um, somehow gotten on the extremely wrong track. Um, <laughs> but I, I imagine that's how they find that they get the right engagement. Now, maybe the CDK will change some of this, right? Maybe the amount of interest that it's generating will get it to the point where um, uh, blogs get written with CDK programs being, being written there. Um, I think that presents different problems about what that CDK program might hide um, from when you're learning about a service. Uh, but yeah, it's definitely not, you know, I wrote a blog for AWS and my first draft had it as CloudFormation and then we changed it to the console, right? And um, that- and that must've hurt. Did you die a little inside when that happened? I mean, no, because there, there definitely are users Right, who that's that's the way in which um, they interact with AWS, and they should be able to learn from it. Their company, right? Because again, developers are often not fully in control of their process, and right. so they may that's not. Good point. They may not be able to say, uh, "I want to go and um, uh, update. I want to update this through CloudFormation." Right. Um, either because their organization says it or just because their team doesn't work that way. 
And I think AWS gets requests to like prevent people from using the console, but also to force people to use the console. I know that at least one of them is possible in IAM. I don't remember which because I've never encountered it, but I think it's possible to make people use the console. I'm not sure, but I know that there are companies who want both, right? Who, who, there are companies right. who say, we don't want to let people use the APIs. We want to force them to use the console. Okay. There are companies who say, we don't want people using the console at all. We want to force them to use the APIs. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So it's a, there's, a, there's a lot of AWS customers, right? And there's every possible right. variety of, of organization. And AWS should be serving all of them. Right, they're all customers, right. um, and you know certainly I want AWS to be leading the ones that are earlier in their cloud journey and their serverless on the serverless ladder um, to getting further. Uh, but you can't leave them behind. I think is the uh, is the important thing. Right, and so that that people argument and those different levels and coming in at a different, um, you know, sort of a different, I guess, level or comfortability with APIs versus infrastructure as code and so forth. That was another question or another sort of comment on this that said, um, you know, I love the idea of committing everything that makes my solution to text and resurrect an entire solution out of nothing um, other than an account key. Love the ability to compare versions and unit tests every bit of my solution and not having to remember that one weird setting if you're you know, using the console. But hate that it makes some people believe that any coder is now an infrastructure wizard. Um, and I think this is a good point, right? And I, and I don't 100% agree with it, but I, I think it's a good point that it basically, you know, back to your point about creating these little transformations in Pulumi, like you could do a lot of damage. I mean, good or bad, right? When you are using these tools, um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, is this is this something where like, you know, and again, ADA, uh, the SD, uh, the CDK makes it so easy for people to write these constructs pretty quickly and, and spin up tons of infrastructure um, without, you know, without a lot of guardrails to protect them. So I think if, if we tweak the statement slightly, um, I think there's truth there, which isn't about the self-perception, but about what they need to be, right? That... Right. And I think this is more about serverless than about infrastructure as code, right? Infrastructure as code is just saying that you can define it, right? I think it's more about the resources that are in a particular definition um, mm -hmm. that, that require that. Um, and so I do think um, uh, my former colleague, Aaron Kammerer says, serverless means every developer is an architect because you're not in that situation where the code you write goes on to something, you write the whole thing, right? Right. Um, and so you do need to have those, um, you, you do need to be an infrastructure wizard. Um, whether you're given the tools to do that um, and the education to do that, right? Not always, um, right. if you're lucky. Uh, and the self-perception is again an even different thing, right? That um, uh, especially if coders think that there's nothing to be learned, if programmers, right, software developers think that there's nothing to be learned from the folks who traditionally define the infrastructure, which is ops, right? right. They think, oh, I don't, those people have nothing to teach me. 
because now I can do all the things that they did. Well, you can create the things that they created. That does not mean that you're as good right. at it. Um, and, or, or responsible and be, for monitoring it too. Right. The monitoring, the, uh, the experience of saying, you know, these are the things that will come back to bite you that aren't obvious. Right. right. Um, this is how much ownership you're getting into. Um, and that, you know, there's very much a longstanding problem there of, of devaluing ops as a, uh, as a function and as a career. And for my money, when I look at serverless, I think uh, serverless is also making uh, the software development easier because there's so much less software you need to write. You need to write less software that deals with the hard parts of these architectures, the scaling, right? You know, the distributed right. um, computing problems. You still have the distributed computing problems, but you're considering them functionally rather than coding things that that, that address them, right? Um, right, right. And so I see a lot of operations folks who come into serverless, learn um, or learn a new programming language or just upskill, right? They were writing Python scripts to um, control stuff and they, they learn more about Python to be able to do software development in it. And then they bring all of that ops experience and expertise into it and look at something and say, oh, I'd much rather have step functions here than right. something where I'm writing code for it because I know how much my you know scripts break and those kind of things um, when an API changes or you know I have to update it or whatever it is. Um, uh, and I think uh, this is something that Tom McLaughlin talks about having come from an ops background uh, mm -hmm. in the serverless. And so I think there's definitely um, a challenge there in both directions, right? That uh, ops needs to learn more about software development to be more engaged in that process. Software development does need to learn much more about infrastructure and is also at this risk of approaching it from, I know I know the syntax, but not the semantics sort of a thing, right? Of we can right. yeah, create good point. an infrastructure. Just because I can doesn't mean I should. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so Ben, as a... Um, as we're like looping around this conversation and coming back to this idea that software is people and that really software should enable you to focus on the things that do matter. I'm wondering if you can um, perhaps think of like a, a as pristine as possible an example of when you saw this working. Maybe it was while you while you've been at iRobot or a project that you worked on on your own outside of that. But this this moment where you saw like software really working as it should, and that how it enabled you or your team to focus on the things that matter. If there's like a, a, a concrete example that you can give when you see it working really well and what that looks like. Yeah, I mean, iRobot is a great example of this. Having been a company without. Uh, need for software that scaled um, to consumer electronics volumes, right? Room of volumes, uh, and needing to build a IoT cloud application uh, to run connected Roombas, and being able to do that without having to gain that expertise. So without having to build a team that could deal with auto scaling, fleets of servers, um, all of those things. Uh, was able to build up completely serverlessly and so skip an entire sort of uh, 
level of organizational expertise because that's just not necessary to accomplish those tasks anymore. Sounds quite nice. It's really great. <laughs> um, well, I have one more question here that I think could probably end up, you know, um, uh, could we could talk about for another hour. So I will only throw it out there, but um, uh, and maybe you can give me a quick answer on this. But I actually had another uh, Twitter thread on this not too long ago um, that addressed this very, very problem. And this is the idea of um, the feedback cycle on these uh, infrastructure as code tools, where um, oftentimes to deploy infrastructure changes, I mean, it just takes time. In, in many cases, things can run um, in parallel, but as you said, there's race conditions and things like that, that sometimes things have to be, um, they just have to be synchronous. Um, so is, is this something where you know, there are there are ways where you see in the future these mutations to your infrastructure or things like that potentially happening faster um, to get a better uh, feedback cycle. Or do you think that's just something that we're going to have to deal with for a while? Yeah, I think it's definitely a very uh, extensive topic. I think right. um, there's a few things. One is that the deployment cycle needs to get shortened. And part of that, I think, is splitting dev deployments from prod deployments. In prod, it's okay for it to take 30 seconds, right? Or a minute or however long, uh, because that's at the end of a CI CD pipeline, right? There's other things that are happening right. as part of that. Now, you don't want that to be hours or whatever it is, right? But it's okay for that to be sort of proper and to fully manage exactly what's going on in a principled manner. When you're doing for development, it would be okay to, for example, change the Lambda code without going through CloudFormation to change the Lambda code, right? And this is what right. Architect does, is there's a notion of a dirty deploy, which just packages up. Now, if you're resource graph has changed, you do need to deploy again, right? But if Absolutely. the only thing that's changing right. is your code, sure, you can go and say update function code, right? On that on that Lambda directly, and that's faster. But it calling it a dirty deploy is I think important because that is not something that you want to do in prod, right? You want, right. you don't want there to be drift between what the infrastructure as code service understands. But then, uh, you go further than that and imagine, you know, there's no reason that you actually have to do this whole zip file process. You could be R-syncing the code directly, right? or you could be operating over SSH on the code remotely, right? There's many different ways in which the loop from, I have a change in my Lambda code to that Lambda having that change could be even shorter than that. Mm -hmm. Right. And for me, that's what it's really about. I don't think that local mocking is the answer. Uh, you and uh, Ryan LaRue were talking about this uh, recently. Yes, we were. <laughs> and I think, I mean, I agree with both of you. So I think about it as I want unit tests of my business logic. Right. Absolutely. But my business logic doesn't deal with uh, AWS services. So I want to unit test something that says, okay, I'm performing this change in something 
And that's entirely within my custom code, right? It's not touching other services. That doesn't mean that I actually need adapters, right? I could be dealing with sort of the native formats that I'm getting back from a given service, but I'm not actually right. making calls out of the code. I'm mocking out, well, here's a here's what the response would look like. Um, and, uh, and so I think that's definitely necessary in a unit testing sense of saying, is my business logic correct? I can do that locally. But then the, is the wiring all correct? Is something that should only happen in the cloud. Mm. Like, uh, there's no reason to mock API gateway into Lambda locally, right? In in my mind, like you should just be dealing with the, the Lambda side of it in your local oh, unit right. tests rather than trying to set up this sort of multiple thing. Um, so I think there's another part of the story is okay, so these deploys have to happen faster, right? And then how do we help set up those end-to-end -end tests and give the observability into it, right? X-Ray helps, but until X-Ray can sort through all the services that you might use in the serverless architecture, can deal with how does it work in my Lambda function when there's batching from Kinesis or SQS into my function. So multiple right. traces are now being handled by one invocation, right? These are problems that aren't solved yet. Um, until we get that kind of inspection, uh, it's going to be hard for us to uh, to feel as good about cloud development. And again, this is where I feel sometimes like there's more friction there, but there's better, there's a bigger payoff. It's one of those right. things where again, fighting against your incentives, um, which is not the place that you want to be. Right. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna stop yep. you before you disagree with me anymore. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> but um, so, uh, Rebecca, you have any final uh, thoughts or questions for Ben? No, I just want to say to both of you and to everyone listening that I hope your today self is celebrating your yesterday self right now. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, Ben, thank you so much um, for joining us uh, and being a guinea pig, as we said on this uh, on this great new format pig. that we are are trying. Excellent guinea pig, excellent. an excellent human um, too, but also great guinea also, pig. Also, right, right, <laughs> very much so. Um, so, if people want to find out more about you, read some of the stuff you're doing and working on, how do they do that? I'm on Twitter. That's the primary place. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't post much there. Um, and then I I write articles that show up on Medium. So those are kind of the, the places. And the just so ones. everyone knows, your Twitter handle, I'll say it out loud too, is at Ben11 Kehoe, K-E-H-O-E. Ben11 Kehoe. Yeah. Right. Perfect. All right. Well, we will put all that in the show notes. And hopefully uh, people will, uh, will will like this new format. And again, we'd love your feedback on this, um, things that you'd like us to uh, do in the future, any ideas you have. And of course, um, you know, make sure you reach out to Ben. He's an amazing resource for serverless. So again, thank you for everything you do. And thank you for being on the show. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. This is great. Good to see you. Thank you. And that's this week's serverless chat. Rebecca and I want to give a huge thank you to Ben Kehoe for being our guest this week and to our sponsors, CBT Nuggets and Lamigo. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 107. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. 
You can connect with Rebecca and me on Twitter at Jeremy underscore daily and at Becca Odelay. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining us. And we look forward to chatting with all of you again when we come back on August 30th with all new episodes.